0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to John Troyer uh, about his new book, Technologies of the Human Corpse. The relationship of the dead body with technology throughout history, from 19th century embalming machines to the death prevention technologies of today. Death and a dead body have never been more alive in the the public imagination, not least because of current debates over the modern medical technology that is deployed, it seems expressly to keep human bodies from dying, blurring the boundary between alive and dead. In his book, John Troyer examined the relationship of the dead body with technology, both material and conceptual, the physical machines, political concerns, and sovereign institutions that humans use to classify, organize, repurpose, and transform the human, human corpse. Doing so, he asks the readers to think about death, dying, and dead bodies in a radically different ways. Well, John,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm I'm very excited to be on the the program. This is uh, great. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Oh, it's great to have you. It is such a joyful subject as well. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times during the global pandemic, I would like to ask how has it affected your work and you, and also maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from all of this experience?
1: No, that's a great question, um, Galina. And I, the, so there are a couple of different responses I have to the pandemic, and I, I've been asked about them um, in lots of different ways. So, f- first of all, I, I just want to extend a i condolences isn't even the right word, but you know, to everyone who lost or had someone they knew or a family member uh, die uh, related to to COVID. Um, that certainly, I had you know, friends from my own like high school or college certainly had friends and family die. I was very fortunate that my my own parents, who certainly were in the high risk categories themselves, um, didn't die, were able to be vaccinated. But I think, you know, the one thing that I was really I, I'm still angry about this, actually, was for years, I and colleagues worked on mass disaster, um, mass fatality, pandemic response planning. That was part of what we did and and wrote reports and were consulted and did all all kinds of work around how to respond to a pandemic event. And I think all of us were uh, utterly aghast at how none of what we had worked on seemed to have been taken off the shelf to be looked at uh, in either the United States or the United Kingdom, which are the two countries I know. Because I am originally from the States, but I live in the UK and work in the UK, um, but have, have worked at, you know, different aspects of what I've just described in both countries. So that was my that was one response. Uh and I know I'm not alone in this because I have spoken with with other colleagues who work even at higher levels of government about this, and they've said we, we don't know what happened. Um the other um the other thing that happened to me was I I flew to America on March 18th of 2020. So this was at the really the beginning of what we didn't realize was the beginning, but the beginning of what became the COVID pandemic. And uh, which was a week earlier than I had expected to fly to America to help my parents with some health issues. Um, previously, at the very end of 2019, my my, my father had, had a massive cardiac arrest at an airport, Minneapolis, St. Paul International Airport, and had died, but then was resuscitated, um, made a miraculous recovery in ways that we, you know, don't, understand totally. And I'm I'm using miraculous loosely, but that's one of the only ways to describe it. My mom had um, issues around cancer. So I was I was going there to help them. And uh, about a week after I arrived, all the borders were basically closed, all the flights were canceled. And I ended up living with my parents for six months in America, um, because I couldn't get back to the UK. So I had this experience where because of the pandemic, I've now spent um, many, much more time living and being with my parents, looking after them, caring for them, which is very important to me, than I would have otherwise. And I, I think about that a lot. And I think about all the people who who weren't, who won't be able to do that, uh, in part because, and this brings me back to my initial point, because their friends and family died from a completely preventable scenario, by and large and th- that's what makes me so angry that so much of this could have been prevented and just wasn't and just wasn't and and i i am hoping in the future will be looked at very closely as to why that is the case
0: oh, i'm really sorry about uh, your parents but uh, i'm really glad that everything worked out and you approached it very mindfully as well
1: well and my parents are fine they've been vaccinated mm-hmm. They're in good health, you know what I mean? Like, they're they have, I mean, they have, I mean, I have to tell you then, too. So, then <laughs> this isn't funny, but it, you, some people will be like, Well, you would have thought you would have learned your lesson. Then, in um, December of 2020, December 13th, I flew to America again, this time to see my parents for you know the holidays, as you do. Uh, and then the next week, again, everything got closed. <laughs> so, I, I then spent five months living with my parents again. Um, moving into 2021 and i've just now returned to the uk after a month and it it is i I mean it is but because everything was done remotely everything was done online it it was this weird situation where it didn't honestly make a difference where i was in the world because of the work i do because of my job and I, i feel extremely i've you know never for a second taken any of that for granted because there are so many people and I think we see this in the mortality rates around COVID, you know, it, it, it should come as no surprise that the individuals who are dying are the individuals who do not have the, the time or the money or the social access to not have to directly engage in activities that could put them at risk. Um, and I said, said as much to my students on the last day that I taught an in-person class, which was March 17th of 2020, uh, for the the students who were there before really, you know, for example, the University of Bath, where I'm a faculty member, shut down. But certainly this is when universities in the UK were just beginning to close down. And I just said to those students, um, guys, I feel terrible about what you're about to see because you're about to watch a lot of people die who didn't need to die. And uh, I, I don't see any, any other way around that. And one of the reasons I was saying all this was because a lot of my work is just, uh, for example, in the history of the AIDS epidemic, particularly the early AIDS epidemic, which is still with us as a pandemic, it's not gone away. Yeah. Um, but I said, I am. I am so reminded right now. I actually became quite emotional, which also then kind of freaked my students out. But I'm, I'm so reminded of the of the of the early years of the AIDS epidemic, and I, I you just you shouldn't have to see any of this about what there there are plans in place, and I, I, I don't know why they're not they seem to be followed. Um, so anyway, so that was, I, so I had this, you know, kind of weird, you know, vacillation between really just anger <laughs> when I saw as a complete failure, but also taking a bit of solace, if I can even use that term to spend time with my parents during a pandemic. So I could reflect on what was going on uh, and, um, you know, making sure they were okay, which was important to me.
0: Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned that you teach uh, at the University of Bath. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do?
1: Sure, so I'm a faculty member in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences at the uh, University of Bath in um, Southwest England. I'm the the director of uh, the Center for Death and Society. So I work in death and dying, broadly defined. Uh, The Center for Death and Society was formed, founded in 2005. Uh, and, uh, I joined in 2008. So I've been in the UK for 12 years now, just over 12 years. And, uh, it, my work is largely, uh, around death, dying and dead body interdisciplinary study research areas by which I mean, I cover a large range of topics, my own background, uh, my education is always was done in the States. So my PhD is from the university of Minnesota. Uh, in the Department of uh, Cultural Studies, Comparative Literature, the program in Comparative Studies and Discourse and Society. And uh, it's, it, it's more arts and humanities, I think, uh, stressful, stressing on the humanities side um, than the social sciences world in which I find myself in at times. However, really what I ended up working in would be sort of science and technology studies, the history of science and technology, and also bioethics but as that relates to death and dying, the dead body, what happens to people when they are dying, politics around choices around death and dying, and then also what happens to the dead, the dead body, the human corpse, uh, after the person dies, uh, legal, philosophical, uh, to a certain extent, religious concerns around those issues as well.
0: So how did you get interested in science and specifically the science of death?
1: That's a great question. I mean, it, I, th- I think, I think, you know, death remains one of those topics Wherever it, I got interested in it to answer your question directly uh, in part because there is a, fa- there's a family history here, which is my, I've mentioned my, my parents already, but my father was a funeral director in America for, for many decades. So I grew up around the funeral industry. I, I can't, I can't say that that's the reason I ended up doing what I do, although it certainly helped. <laughs> but I had no mm-hmm. grand plans to be clear about this. In fact, when I was in grad school, the center for death and society didn't exist. Um, and, and indeed one of my, my PhD supervisor, John Archer, who's a, he's a great, just a great PhD supervisor, mostly because he just put up with me, uh, at the university of Minnesota. In fact, at one point he was like, where are you going to get a job with this? And I was like, I don't know, but I'll find it. And, uh, and I, I did. Like I don't know. I don't know else to say. Like I just I did. Like in the way that sometimes these things work. But I think when we so I grew up, I grew up around death and dying, and I think that for me the 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 science questions around death have always been, in some ways, the most interesting. And a lot of it, what it comes down to, is is are these questions around, you know, what is the definition of death? Like how do we define when a when someone is is dead? And so there's, there is a, there's, a, there's a scientific, a, you know, like a biomedical, a clinical aspect to that around what would be described as the determination of death, the moment of death. But of course, that's also legal, philosophical, religious. It's it's it's, so it's such a confluence of those points that I, I've always been really fascinated um, by not only the science around the definition of death as in when someone has died, but also to the science around um Bodily preservation and the technologies that were evolved or developed to preserve the dead body, but also to keep a you know a dying person alive. I mean, one of the areas I'm always intrigued by is um, you know the development of life support technology that we would understand today. So artificial respiration, ventilation, um, any number of of devices that emerged in the 1970s uh, as tools that we humans can use and. You know the the vast philosophical and ethical dilemmas those tools facilitated, in part because you know we humans continue to rethink and redefine what is death, and that to me I think is always interesting to to study.
0: So all of this uh, passion that you have, and also your wealth of experience, are very well encapsulated in your book, uh, Technologies of the Human Corpse. So can you tell us? Um, what is it about, and how did you come to writing it?
1: Sure, the tech. Well, so te- thank you very much. The Technologies of the human corpse uh, came out with MIT Press, and um, so the book. It, uh, a, um, a colleague described it as wide-ranging, which I think is a fair description. <laughs> but it effectively what what the the book encapsulates or looks at is it's not a it's not a linear history here, but a development of how different tools developed by humans to do things with dead bodies have altered and changed perceptions of both what is a dead body, but also how death looks like. So what it looks at, so it starts with, for example, the 19th century in the use of the West predominantly, but, but, you know, tech that was developed for embalming to preserve the dead body in a more reliable method, but also photography and the photographing of the dead, which created a, like a photographic, um, you know, a copy, an image. And I think that what I was interested in was how these different tools, none of which are technologically determined, and your many of your listeners, I, I would hope that the technological determinism flags would go up um, around this, none of which is technologically determined. And I, I make a big point of that because, you know, largely what this is, is humans using a set of tools. Now we do tend sometimes to blame the technologies things that have happened but that's not the case like we're just using these tools to do different things as they evolve so how for example do preservation technologies um, that emerged in the 19th century make dead bodies you know different or make them transportable because of the railway system now we can talk about the air air freight system how does that alter or change perceptions of death like what is death what are we supposed to do with these dead bodies and then you end up in in situations in which dead bodies become very problematic, and that would be the AIDS epidemic, for example, in which suddenly, because of the, a misunderstanding, and in many cases, homophobia. Right? What is it about this suddenly scary dead body that that is is regarded as dangerous as a body exposed to radiation? In in really the big Cold War threat, which was you know, what do we do with all the bodies that that happen after a nuclear war? I mean, those kinds of those kinds of um, questions. And then also then you know a whole kind of if you will commodification or commodity market around dead bodies, and sometimes what's referred to as body brokering or the idea of not this is not organ donation which is separate, but the buying and selling of human tissues and bones to use in in both uh, experimentation but also for for you know biomedical products. Um, exhibitions uh, in in using dead bodies, for example, body world. So it's, it's a long list of things, but really what I'm interested in is just how we humans have made sense starting in the 19th century in the West predominantly uh, with what the dead body is and can be and can become through a kind of external technological innovation, quote unquote. And in many cases, the dilemmas that has created for us as a species <laughs> as far as that goes.
0: You're asking super fascinating questions I never thought I actually had.
1: Well, that's my job uh, as director <laughs> of the Center for Death and Society. It's what I do full time. And, uh, you know, but no, but you're right. And I think that I mean, again, this, you asked about getting into this. I mean, I think that's one of the things where my background growing up around the funeral industry, which, so for me, like growing up around funerals and dead bodies uh, was just totally normal. And and I'm not saying that, that to be cavalier. I'm just saying it was just normal. It was like what my dad did, you know, and we never lived in the funeral home. And I know I always point that out because people we'll start to imagine this sort of six feet under television show, you know, world that was not it. We never lived in the funeral home, but I certainly grew up around them and it was just normal. It was just normal. And uh, I, so for me, I think that sort of that everydayness of, of, of the fact that people die is, has helped contribute to, to the way I, I understand, or in my own mind attempt to look at research around all these topics.
0: Okay, so let's get into science a little bit. So, when was the uh, earlier uh, the earliest practices uh, discovered about around uh, human bodies before we go on to nineteenth century?
1: Yeah, well, now you're into a really great topic because if you if you want to get archaeologists really arguing, um, which I'm always fond of doing, uh, you can start asking about what the Neanderthals were doing with their dead, um, because there are there's evidence in different Neanderthal caves or settlements caves that have been discovered that the Neanderthal um, Neanderthals were burying their dead. Uh, and the question has always been, and they found what would be described as different grave goods or objects, things like that. Um, the question has always been, were, the, were the, the dead being buried for ceremonial ritual reasons that we might use today? Or is it possible? And maybe it's not an or; it could be an and. They were buried because they were decomposing and smelled. Mm. So, and and I have to be frank; I tend to side with the decomposing and smelling part, which is not to say there is no ritual involved in that. But, um, but I think that that what what we're getting into. So, if we talk about technological innovation around dead bodies. One of the one of the most significant and I would say uh, um, important human inventions in this regard was the digging of the grave, because the the grave space, the burial space doesn't happen on its own. That has to be invented. And that's that's been an invention that's still with us today, obviously. Because we still do it. and so when we talk about like the earliest methods, and then we can move all the way through different ancient, ancient civilizations and what they were up to, and the use of fire, the not use of fire for things like cremation, you know, different cultural practices, whatever it might be. Then, of course, we want to talk about mummification and preservation in the Egyptian uh, you know, system of, of body preservation, which, of course, we're still talking about today because we still find endlessly fascinating, you know, moving all the way then through to anatomical study, particularly in what we think of being the early modern and Renaissance period and this idea of the, the cutting open of the dead body. And that's, this becomes a crucial moment to understand pathology and to understand pathological anatomy that you can look at one a healthy organ and an unhealthy organ, and you can begin to figure out, and this becomes one of the crucial moments in science causation and the causation that can be determined by looking at a dead body. And, and I think that the invention of the autopsy becomes a huge moment, particularly in um, you know, 17th into 18th century uh, uh, science philosophy, natural philosophy, in which suddenly there's an understanding that looking into the interior of the human body, there are ways to understand why people died. And and I think that the ability to, to to determine causation from that set of tools is with us today. So much so that when we have an indeterminate cause, or it's not it's not possible to say why a person died, for any number of reasons, it really bothers us, because we've so philosophically come to understand that death is something that can be determined. They were living, they're dead. There must be a causation. Uh, but what if you can't determine the causation? So I think that that, that is both a, a practical um uh, situation that then becomes a, a very philosophical understanding of, of death itself. And then we move into the 19th century where I was talking about in terms of um, you know, preservation advances in germ theory, well, not germ theory, advances in in uh, concepts of of more around causation, uh around disease, and uh, you know, as more and more understanding of, you know, why a person died. I mean, one of the reasons you have to understand. The reason I'm I'm sort of going moving this way through it is because, you know, for many centuries, the answer to why a person died is it was God's will. You know, mm. which which is a it's a solid argument. I mean, it works if enough people are like, why did they die? It was God's will. Okay. You know what I mean? And you will still hear that sometimes in different forms. But I think by and large, today in the West as it's developed, if we were to say, Why did they die? Well, it was God's will, I I think many people would say, I kinda want more than that i would like a better understanding of what's going on here.
0: yeah there's a cleaver in somebody's head yeah i would like some answers yeah I,
1: I would like to know more than it's god's will so or god wills it wills it you know that kind of thing so i think that as we begin to see a shift from a a you know a theological to a a more secular understanding of of Humanity. I mean, we see. I mean, and even someone, you know, philosophically in the 17th century, like Rene Descartes, writing about, you know, investigations and anatomical study and how he's trying to make sense of what that can mean in terms of, of you know, a world created by God or a world understood by man. I mean, we can get into, you know, really, you know, big areas of metaphysics, but <laughs> to, but like the whole, the whole gist of so much of that is as soon as we humans understand that we can begin to do things with our dead bodies to make sense of ourselves that you know th- then we're often running in terms of any number of of technological scientific innovations that we can produce
0: so can you describe a couple of uh, technologies that were developed in the 19th century the most notable ones perhaps
1: Sure. Well, the 19th century ones I've already alluded to a little bit were, um, for example, um, uh, embalming of the dead. So a not just embalming of the dead, because preservation of the dead body was something that anatomists in previous centuries had really struggled with. Uh, they were always trying to figure out preservation methods so they could spend more time studying the dead because it was a real issue um, which is why there was a whole market around digging up the dead or or a a more recently dead body so there was a there was an effort to try and do this but it's in the 19th century that you have a series of embalmers ganal in france and then um thomas holmes in america and what they were able to do is develop a mechanical reproducible mechanical, chemical reproducible method in which through a pump system, um, you develop venal and arterial um, uh, infusion of the dead body with a preservative embalming solution that then, that then more or less reduces the impact of, if you will, nature on the dead body. And then also in effect, removes the dead body for a prolonged period of time from our everyday temporality. And so this is why I became really interested because embalming in this reproducible method that could be then done because reproducibility was always a key thing. It meant that suddenly there was more time, there was more space. There were, there were more things that could be done to a dead body and that, that, that became a crucial uh, shift in how we understood the temporality of death where suddenly it wasn't necessary to bury the dead as soon as possible. Now there are still there are still religious and cultural groups that do that, certainly within Judaism and Islam, other religions, uh, those of the Abrahamic fold, those being the two dominant, but even within conservative Christian groups, you'll find as well, burial within 24 hours or as soon as possible, no embalming, nothing like that. So I, I think that, that that preservation, and, and it's much maligned today, and I and, and understand what's like a lot of people who don't, who are not interested or that keen on a kind of preservation system like that. And I get all that, but I think it had a, it had a pronounced impact in how we think about if you basically even just the, the transferring of the dead body into different places. So that's Mm -hmm. one, another big one would be like photography, which was not about death, but obviously once you can take photographic images, uh, dead bodies uh, deceased loved ones are being photographed right away that should not come as a surprise if you can say anything about the history of communication and visual media technologies that we humans have developed it's that we use them with our dead loved ones right away uh the same was true of uh the telegraph line it was used right away to explain that someone had died or certainly to make sure that that shipping of the deceased went as planned um and that that you know once we begin to understand the different ways to communicate both that someone has died but also to capture that their use and that's why when we talk about digital technologies today the foundations are laid in the 19th century there's no question about that in my mind i don't think um they're, they're, they can be different but that's that's in the 19th century where we begin to see it. there's also the invention of like anti-grave robbing technologies right <laughs> you can find these mm-hmm. online they're great blueprints Google patents has a lot of them or you know devices you know guns cannons that are loaded to fire if you open the you know the vault without the proper um, you know, key or, 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 lock, but also then, and this is true. I've always wanted to do a project around this premature anti-premature burial devices. Um, I've always wanted to build some and then have myself buried. And then, you know, try them out to see if they work. Oh, dear. I mean, you know, it's sort of like an experiment or maybe just make some models. But like, you know, ringing bells or or, or horns to, to, you know, if you wake up, suddenly you come to you and you're like, I'm not dead. And you ring a bell or you hit a hit a button. So like a horn sounds or something like that. I mean, so well, for
0: Sure. And people sometimes use the mobile phones, don't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, they'll, they'll put, um, yeah, they'll stick. It, it's, it's pretty common to stick a phone with someone in the um, in the, the, the coffin yeah today, which is more or less I think just an object that, you know, you can think of this almost as a as a grave good, like an object that you would put with something I, I actually am interested in this because of course those devices are going to exist long after we're all dead. And mm-hmm. so it will vex future archaeologists, I'm sure, as to what what the hell are these things. Um but nonetheless, yeah.
0: So as we move to the 20th century, were there any notable developments uh, then?
1: Sure. Well, of course, I mean, I think so. Uh, yes, significant ones. I mean, I think that as far as preservation technologies go, everything we're talking about in the 19th century moves into the 20th century. But then, of course, it becomes uh, electrified, um, motorized. And so those are those are key key differences the photographic of the dead doesn't disappear although we don't see the photos on display they would have been done in the 19th century which is one of the key things mm. um and i think you can argue that more that the photographic of the dead has actually expanded particularly with with people's um phones um but that um uh they're not on display the way they were in which, in the Victorian period, people would would put this would have this would have the deceased sometimes parents holding the dead child on display for for other people to to see. Um, but so I think I think that's continued. I I do think one of the the major innovations in the 20th century, and it's one that I mean, it's not that we take it for granted today, but it's one we don't think about as much was was the development of cadaveric donation for organ transplantation, and the understanding that you could you could use organs from a a deceased individual to help keep another person alive and so i think that that was an idea that had been around for a long time so it was experimented on you know going back a number of centuries but the, the idea that that could be done and could be done through a combination of both surgery and um uh you know pharmaceutical uh you know help or drug help um that that became that became a a thing that is now with us. And I think, you know, has genuinely saved many, many people's lives, uh, in part, because they have, um, you know, kidney, a heart, particularly heart or a lung, uh, from someone who died. And I think that's been, that was a significant breakthrough.
0: Yeah, for sure. Successful transplantation was a, was a huge development and I
1: mean, successful and reproducible. I mean, that becomes the, you know, so that it becomes standardized in a way. Um, and it is possible to have, of course, living donors. And we can talk about kidneys and, and other, um, you know, body parts that way, but but particularly the heart. And I think that, and as, you know, as I talk with my students about this in my sociology of death class, I said, the thing about the heart is if you're going to donate your heart, it means you have to be dead because there's no other way around that. Uh, and, and, and interestingly, that opens up a, an, an older philosophical question, which is one that you can even make the case that that um, Rene Descartes was struggling with in, in his own writings. Um, I've always read Discourse and Method that way, but this way, which is, you know, so where is where is the person, right? Where is the person? Is the person mm. in the brain or is the person in the heart? And, you know, philosophically for a long time, many centuries, the answer was the heart because it it was where you know we think about the soul i'm not using soul here but i'm using this idea of the person now of course we think about it as being very neurologically driven like the person is in the brain um but this is why you still have groups that will say as long as the person's heart beats they are they are alive uh which has been created all kinds of problems once we get into artificial ventilation and in in life support in the 1970s because their heart could be beating but are they, is the person still there uh, and I, I bring all this up because I'll, I'll throw that I'll throw that one at my my undergrads and they will go all over the place with that one because <laughs> you know they're, they're like oh my God I haven't thought about I don't know and then they'll, they'll and you'll find a lot of them will say no it's the heart it's not the brain I don't think I think that's where the person is. So I think that there's there's a kind of legacy of that when we talk about something like heart
0: transplantation. It's fascinating. So uh, you already mentioned how um, opening the corpse uh, really revolutionized our understanding of the disease and uh, trying to really look at the causation uh, part with all the pathology. Um, So how are the body parts used today in the sciences to really inform us on the processes in the living bodies? And maybe some ethical quandaries that surround it as well?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, the, so, the, how, so how dead bodies are used today um, is, uh, is multi-fold. There's multi-purposes going on. So on the one hand, we've already talked about organ transplantation, but I'm going to step away from organ transplantation when I answer this question, because organ transplantation, organ donation is largely, um, and here I mean vital organs, is something that is regulated in a way uh, that I'm, what I'm about to talk about is not. So, and also I would say that organs are, are privileged um, in a, in a, in a way they're heroicized in a way, which I think is legit that are different than let's say bone and tissue donation. Um, that, that there is a whole other world of both medical research, but also um uh, industrial products that are made that do not involve organs because that is something that is seen as, is just being different. So what do I mean by other products? Well, for example, in order, in, in addition to being an organ donor, as many people are, as I am, you can also be a bone and tissue donor, which I am as well, a uh, skin donor. So it's, it is possible to, to um, the, the older term, which isn't so much used now is harvest or extract bones, tissues, Um, from from an individual who has died and use those for both uh, medical treatments if you will so for example using skin for uh, burn units uh, or also using bones to create different kinds of um, uh, bone screws or medical devices to be used more organic materials for surgical procedures Uh, But you can also, for example, donate your eyes uh, and uh, eye banks collect corneas to use for different procedures that actually, interestingly enough, um, that the eyes are the one thing that a lot of people don't want to donate. And I found this with my students too. I'd never thought about that, but I read about it, that, mm. that, that many people are really, in fact, I, I've, I have to be careful when I start talking about eye donation in my class because it just drives a lot of students absolutely up the wall to think about it. There's just something about the idea of donating one's eyes for the corneas or eye enucleation, as it's called. Um that a lot of people cannot handle. <laughs> In fact, some of your listeners right now might be like, "Stop talking about the eyes. I don't <laughs> want to you know. I'm having a panic attack." Um, but that, you know, there there are ways that over the years what have developed is there's a whole system of of if you will buying and selling of human tissues and body parts for different Uh, Industrial experiments, so for example, impact studies uh, around car uh, impacts, Um, the military has done experiments around the impact of different explosive devices. Um, I mean, the list can go on and on. Effectively, if you want to try and study what what an accident or what some kind of um, uh, disaster situation might do to living humans, then you you will attempt because for various i think very um understandable ethical reasons not trying to use living humans to do this in part because human subject research is has a long history of of the most horrific of human subject research being done uh in that way they'll there will be an attempt to use or there will be the use of of human cadavers or human cadaver parts. um and it it's a whole industry and i think that there have been real scandals which can be an overused term but but scandals that have, have emerged when it became clear and if you have individuals who are you know responsible for medical schools listening to this podcast, I want to make it clear that I, this is not me casting aspersions on medical schools or cadaver you know um, you know um, body donation programs and anyway, I'm not. I think that what has happened is you've had individuals who, who figured out uh, that the laws were very loose, particularly in the United States, but it's, you know, you'd be shocked to find it around the world where it is, it is possible effectively to kind of, uh, you know, transfer through what's referred to as a body brokering system, you know, heads, legs, teeth, body parts of deceased individuals to, you know, private buyers, oftentimes from, from kind of big corporations um, and that it's not, it's not against the law uh, that there's not a legal um, uh, problem with it. That's different than organs, organs you can't buy and sell, but that, the, but that tissues, things like bones, skin, that, that, those materials can be, although you're never directly buying them, you're buying the handling service. So that's the key thing, right? So say, Mm Galina, you say to me, I need some femurs to do research. I say, okay, I can get you the femurs, but let's make this clear. You're not buying the femurs. You're buying my time and services to deliver them to you. Do we understand that? And you say yes, and then we're in compliance with the law. So so what happens is is there's been a history of donation, uh, to different med schools and different body donation programs. Again, very legitimate. It's important to have, I think, anatomical study that way, or cadaver labs sometimes as it's been called. Very important. Um, but that oftentimes too, when you, when you sign over, uh, the individual for the program, you are in many cases, um, signing over the entirety of, uh, of if you will rights and here we get into a weird legal area around you know who owns the dead body um which could be a home podcast to do itself mm. but but this is where then you end up in these situations where, where you know individuals who are would be described as bad actors determined that they they can do this within the law and indeed in many of the cases as i cover in chapter five of my book uh Individuals are prosecuted under tax evasion, so they're they're prosecuted for not paying taxes on money they're paid, not for actual anything to do with the body parts.
0: That is so interesting. So, just so many different things and actors that come into play here. Yeah,
1: and I, and I want to make it clear before you start getting emails or pe- tweeting like people talking about the value of what there is a real value to this work. I want to be clear about that. Um, but I think that what has gone on is has been so the mo- the more ethical I think, and there is there's absolutely ethical ways to do this. I think, and and by and large, many families will say, you know, if I'd been told that this was going to happen, I would have been fine with it. It's that it's that they're just never told. So there's there's no I think what is the bedrock principle of so so much of human subject research post World War Two is informed consent. Right. If you have mm. informed consent, that's a starting point, And I think a very crucial one, and that's just not been there. And then you get into cases of fraud because individuals are trying to make, make more money. And that of course is illegal. So people are falsifying documents. That is illegal. You can't do that. So I think there are ways to do all this, but that, but that in order to, and here we can start to talk about a critique of capitalism <laughs> in order to, I think, um, you know, make more money faster there have been any number of corners to use the term have been cut, and that's that's when you end up with all the problems you've got. But there are other ways to do it, and I think that there are there are reputable, ethical uh, ways that are, would be within compliance for human subject research um, to do it. So, I mean, the trick is one one. I know I'm going on and on about this, but there's there's a there's a key distinction here, which is so when you die, when you you or I die. We are still human, right? We're still human. Are you with me on this? So we are still human. Like we are a human body, Mm -hmm. but we are not persons. So personhood, personhood, legally speaking, only exists as a, as a, what has been described as a legal fiction. It's a legal category. So if you are human, you are a person when you can, you can function outside of the womb so we can get into all, all kinds of questions around re- reproductive rights too <laughs> and and this gets into the abortion debates in america and there's there's all kinds of ways but but that personhood as a category which is why um corporations will be persons but we are we as a legal category we are persons until we die at which point we are no longer persons we are so human but we are a, effectively a quasi-subject, but also then a quasi-object. So how does the law make sense of, if you will, this human body that's no longer a person, so you don't have all the legal rights, but then you have next of kin who will say, no, that is my, um, I have a legal obligation or a legal right or whatever it might be to deal with the individual who's deceased. However, then we enter into very uncomfortable Terrain, Which would be something along the lines of questions of property. And that's not what we are. <laughs> mm. So that's what I'm saying. Like we start to think about that. You can think about these philosophically, but these are very, very um, important um, legal distinctions. That really i really
0: appreciate yeah that you brought up these uh, clarifications and i think that uh, you, what what your book uh, really serves really great purpose to bring all of this into the spotlight because being realistic most of us actually feel that this world is just so far away and we don't really know how and you know how our, our bodies uh, are going to be taken care of after we die of course we can make arrangements but if you would like to donate your femur <laughs> To science, for example, I'm not really sure I know how. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean,
1: I, I'm going to make it clear. I'm I'm signed up in both the UK and the United States as a full uh, organ donor, but then also bone and tissue donor. I'm I I want everything that can be used, particularly my organs, if they can be used. If I die in a way that they can be used, because sometimes that is not the case. Bone and tissue donation is a little bit easier. I, I'm using the term easier. I mean, it is not as it's not as conditional on on how you die, but that uh, I, you know I'm I fully consent to that. I also, in doing so, understand that I may not have any control over how those bones, tissues, and organs may be used. Uh, I have no ability to pre-select or predetermine any of that, uh, and I accept that, and I'm okay with that. I make an informed. Consensual choice to do that, um but I think that that's that's the part you need to explain more to people, um you know, and and that I think that that for me I think it is possible to do, but that it just it, that hasn't that's been, there's been a gap in the explanation that way.
0: Mm, yeah, for sure. So there are a few uh, concepts around that bodies and technologies that came into public eye, and now and then they resurface. So, for example. Like exhibition body worlds, but also body farms. Right. Can you maybe give us a bit of an explanation of, of uh, any of those?
1: Sure. Well, I think I mean I think we need to draw a big distinction between the the body farm research facilities and, and body worlds, um, in part because oh, yeah, for sure. yeah no, I know. No, I know. in part because if anyone if anyone who works for any of the the body research facilities is listening right now, they might be sort of like pounding their fists on the thing like no, but I, I, so. I think so. Let's take them separately. So the hmm. the most the most famous um, uh, of well the most famous of the body farms would be of course the the body farm <laughs> down in Tennessee, which was uh, started as an idea by Bill Bass and this idea of an anthropological research facility. Um, there's so there's a funny anecdote about this, and I, I it, there's um, a documentary that was made about it uh, that I um, was was interviewed for that I'd never known. But so Bill Bass was one of these, these anthropologists, forensic anthropologists, and he, what he decided was, if we're gonna try and study you know, proper criminal investigation, forensic investigation of how people die, we need to create a facility in which we can create uh, or try to create, replicate scenarios in which we find dead bodies to study what happens. And and it was a really novel idea and one that has now been replicated in lots of different areas around um, the uh, the world. But he um, there was um, the, the idea for the original name. I'm not joking when I say this was the Bass Anthropological Research Facility, which, of course, the acronym was BARF. So they they realized, okay, we can't do that. So it was you have like this anthropological research facility, which the shorthand has just become the body farm in which down in Tennessee they've they've created these different scenarios. It's been much publicized, it's been you know written about, it's been all kinds of documentaries. Stephen Fry here in the UK went down there. So it's been it's been looked at. Other places have opened them too around the world um australia um different parts of america i mean they've become an interesting spot to do study interestingly enough one of the things that's come out of some of the study has been um has the soil in some instances become too contaminated by previous research so that it's actually impacting uh the results that people are 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 finding uh, hmm. that there might be a limited use for some areas Now there's different research and try to prevent that but but that in some cases maybe the you know the research itself needs to rethink exactly what's going on but certainly entomologists have been crucial here so forensic entomology in the study of how different bugs uh, insects are found or located around their bodies that's been a huge area um, in development that way so that's that's the body farm that's really about you know figuring out you know, criminal criminal analysis and forensic analysis that way. Then you have things like exhibitions of dead bodies, which are which are different but similar, even to, for example, like exhibitions of of you know Egyptian mummies, but in a different kind of way. That Gunther von Hagen starts in the mid '90s, and Gunther von Hagens is a um, he's a German anatomist and actually worked for many years in pathological uh, pathology and pathological anatomy. And actually really, he did create a, a, an important contribution through the plastination process in which you can, you can preserve human organs, for example, for study in both a, a more rigid, but also a more flexible, um, uh, um, preservation process so that students could study them. And that actually was a real contribution. Um, and he, so he, he's, he's thinking this through in terms of educational, uh, Ideas, but then when he comes up with is this idea, but I can do this to whole bodies, and then we can put them on display. And the Body Worlds exhibitions have been around since the mid '90s, and you know there are there's actually a whole Body Worlds um, site now in London in Piccadilly, um, which is like they've taken over a building as an exhibition space. So it it, it it's it's moved back and forth. So in, in Europe, continental Europe, for many years, the only place you would find Body Worlds would be in exhibition spaces. They were they were not as they were found in the United States, and this is a crucial distinction, in science and technology museums, in part because across Europe, many science and technology museums wanted nothing to do with body worlds, Uh, in part because there were questions about the provenance of the bodies or what was going on, Mm. whereas in the United States, the science and technology museums were like, come on in. And (laughs) uh, in fact, I saw body worlds for the first time at a science and technology museum, at the Minnesota Science Museum in St. Paul. Uh, and, and I think that that distinction is crucial since we're, you know, we're talking about, we've been talking about science the whole time to see body worlds in an exhibition space is to see a different exhibition than to see it in a science museum. And I think just by entering the science museum space, it changes, I think how it's understood. That would be my argument. Um, you know, both, both epistemologically, if I can use epistemology in this podcast, I don't think I can. But as well, you know, in terms of a just a broader understanding of what's going on. Now, but Gunther Van Hoggins will tell you his whole project is to democratize anatomy. He wants to bring anatomy to the people and help really help people talk about death and dying. I don't actually think that's going on in body Worlds so much. Um, and I, I my whole take on body worlds is it it conveys to people that when they die, they can look awesome their dead bodies can be amazing looking Um, because if it was truly an exhibition of dead bodies, you would not see any of that. Um, uh, Or you, if it was an exhibition around thinking about death, whatever it might be, you wouldn't see that. Now you can see anatomical structures, which I think is fascinating, but of course then there's all different kinds of choices that are going on. And he's, he moved into different, uh, he moved into different areas then starting in like about 2009, 2010, where they of posing dead bodies engaged in sexual acts. And that, you know, of course, created nothing but controversy, which then did nothing but drive up ticket sales, um, you know, and I, so, and they've also engaged in, uh, you know, you know, preserving um, dead animals, which I find interesting. These are animals that are donated from zoos that have died uh, because I think that, you know, in some cases, you can imagine that that animal species becoming extinct in the future, but what's left are these plastinated remains. So that to me has always been fascinating. Um, But also too, I think just in general, the plastination process creates dead bodies that are going to be around way, way after again, where we as a species are dead. And so, or, you know, we humans living now are dead. And so that, that's going to actually then also create, I think weird, issues for future archaeologists or or historians. Like, what were they doing with their dead bodies? Mm. Um, And, you know, does something like Body Worlds become representative of the late 20th, early 20th, 21st century moment of of dead body technology? Does it come to be represented as this is what they were doing when actually it was just a series of exhibitions?
0: Yeah, for sure. And exhibitions like that and similar things, they really... They really make you think and especially as you mentioned we have animals and we have humans and many people would look at dead animals a little bit in in a different way and then you're given given opportunity to look at a dead human and you start thinking about your own relationship to dead bodies so i was i was just wondering what uh, insights have you gathered about our society when uh, when thinking about how we perceive and uh, wh- what we do with the dead bodies? Yeah,
1: no, no, so that's a good question too. I mean, I think that the, um, so the one thing I think to stress is that you know, since the 1970s particularly, across the West, and this is across the West, so this is not a, a, a specifically like Anglo West thing, but you know we've we've had it drilled into our heads that death is this taboo and that there it's just it's impossible to talk about it it's repressed i think the exact opposite is true quite frankly i think the taboo argument had a was brought forward as a way to create sort of death social movements to challenge they, so death social movements begin to take shape in the 1970s to like sort of um you know embrace death and that they, but they needed something to work against. So what they were saying is death is this taboo. And we got to get rid of this taboo and we need to be, you know, really up with death. And, and, and I think that that's continued more actually, I think the exact opposite is true. I don't think death is a taboo at all. Uh There might be people who don't like talking about it, but there are a lot of people who don't like talking about lots of things like credit card debt or rats or snakes or spike, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. So right. there'll be people who don't like things. I don't think it's a taboo. In fact, one of the things I've, I've learned really across my life, but particularly In my research as director of the Center for Death and Society at the University of Bath and in my book, Technologies of the Human Corpse* by MIT Press, is uh, people really want to talk about death and die. Uh, The sociology of death class that is taught in my department is filled to capacity every year with a waiting list. Students genuinely enjoy taking the class uh people really want to hear you know public lectures on this material and in fact i think if you can say anything is that death has always been extremely popular certainly let's say post-world war ii as a topic that people really want to engage with and talk about and that what it's not a question of i think repression or taboo or any of that what's happened is is we've moved away as a as sort of a society or civilization in the again in the West, because there are many parts of the world where I think you would find people who would say, I really wish we didn't have to talk about death so much. And even I think you would find social groups within the West who would say, in our communities, it would be nice not to have to talk about death so much. So this really is a question to think of, of both affluence as well as, in a certain case, social class. But that that people really do want to talk about death. They want to talk about, they want to have an opportunity to say, uh, you know, this is what I'm thinking. Now, there might be an initial kind of like, well, I don't know, it makes me kind of feel uncomfortable, but that's just the initial response. And once they get going, they'll be like, yeah, I want to talk about this. And I'm interested in, in all these topics around death and dying. I find it super fascinating. I'd never thought about that. And I think that is, I think if anything that I, I'm hopeful, if anything comes out of my book, it's just that it encourages people to, you know, to have those conversations and to realize it's not that difficult um it might be awkward but then we have awkward conversations all the time about lots of things um and it's once you get past it that it, it you know it's fine it can be done
0: interesting so I, w- I was wondering do topics around dead bodies give you nightmares and what is your relationship to halloween <laughs>
1: yeah. so uh nightmares no uh, never had an issue with that uh halloween uh so <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. I, so, um, I, funny story, two funny stories about Halloween. One is, so in my office on campus, of course, I've got, you know, th- different skeletons and skulls and death memorabilia stuff that have just been given to me over the years. Uh, because I, I guess that's what you give a person who studies death. You know what I mean? Like, hey, look, a skeleton. I'll give it to the guy I know who studies <laughs> death. And you put it, in, and I, so I have to, and I have to put it in my office because I'm like, I don't know where else I'm going to put this stuff. And an undergraduate was in my office, this is a few years back, and she said, oh, wow. It, or I should say, this is in October, right? And she said, oh, wow, I really like your Halloween decor in your office. It's really cool. And I was, and I was like, what? And she said, well, yeah, like the skeleton here and, that, and the skull. And I was like, oh, no, no, that's not Halloween decor. That stuff's here all the time. And she was like, oh, okay. I didn't even think about it. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, I was like, oh, yeah, no, that stuff's just there. You know what I mean? Like it's that's that's a Halloween decor, but I, I did a few years ago. Um, I'm sure people can find this. the 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 online publication, The Conversation, asked me to write something about Halloween, and I I just was like, I think Halloween is the most boring holiday ever. Uh, it's, and it, it was it was a bit satirical, it was a bit tongue in cheek, but boy, did people get angry with me about that one. They're like, you know what I mean? It was, like, mm-hmm. and my my point was just simply saying, like, if I have to see, you know, one more Anglo Gringo person with a Day of the Dead something mask on, whatever it might be, I'm just gonna go crazy. You know, it was it was sort of was more about like appropriation of different you know cultural practices, which mm-hmm. I get. That's not new, but I mean, I was just like, and I was just, I was trying to you know, drop point open it. So as far as Halloween goes, uh, you know, I'm fine with it. I'm usually too busy though. I'm a very busy, you know, academic, very important life, very important research, you know. So I just don't usually have time for Halloween, <laughs> but I do like monsters. Use- I like monster movies. So there's that.
0: Yeah, for sure. You're you not short sure on the conversation starters.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. indeed. Yes, you, you've you nailed it. Absolutely. So,
0: Well, John, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I would like to ask, what are you currently working on and what would be your next project?
1: So a couple of things. My editor, uh, Matt Brown at MIT Press, who's a brilliant editor, he um, is talking to me and after me, really chasing, I think is perhaps the best term, to... to do more work around something I started immediately, or really during the COVID pandemic. When I started looking at the AIDS epidemic and and COVID, uh, and trying to understand um, sort of a, you know a pandemic within a pandemic, as it were. But this would build on the historical work I've done looking at at um, AIDS and the AIDS epidemic itself, and trying to understand you know what was learned or what was forgotten from that that pandemic uh, during this pandemic. So there's, there's that, um, another sort of ongoing project. I haven't necessarily, I haven't found a, um, I haven't put this one together, but one project I've always wanted to do and I haven't had a chance to do yet would be a series of interviews with other children of funeral directors from around the world, because the, the informal conversations I've had with other children of funeral directors, we've all had similar experiences, uh, and, in a, in a kind of uncanny sense, uh, which I guess makes sense, but also in strange ways you wouldn't necessarily expect. So I've always wanted to do, you know, what it is to be the child of a funeral director who grows up in a world, you know, where you are by definition because of that just very unique. But then around the world, how do different children, you know, in conflict zones or in different parts of you know non English speaking world, how do they, how do they understand what they do or how the world operates? Um, so there's that, I'm trying to think I'm just, I, I should have come up with a long list of products or, of products of, um, projects just to, to, you know, list off there, but there's all different kinds of research that's you know, it's always going on that way.
0: That sounds super interesting. So where can our listeners find more information about your work? And also the, uh, the technologies of the human corpse.
1: Sure. Well, I think, I, I mean, obviously I want to put in uh, a, a plug here for the Center for Death and Society at the University of Bath. We have a newsletter and you can, uh, it's free. You can always go to the, the University of Bath website or just Google Center for Death and Society. We're the only one. <laughs> so you'll find us. Mm-hmm. But, but the Center for Death and Society is on, um, it's on uh, Facebook. It's also on Twitter. Um, my own personal work, you can find uh, me, probably the best place to check would be on uh, two places. One would be on Twitter. So I, I tweet under the name, um, The Death Reference Desks, which was a project that was started with a couple of librarians um, that I, I, I've more or less kind of, of it's morphed into me working on it more myself, which is fine. That's the way projects go. And that's uh, death reference desk on Twitter is just at death ref. So death and then R E F like I'm the ref, the referee of death. I don't know if that's true, but like death ref. Uh, also, I've got a website, JohnTroyer.com, Cause everyone's got a website uh, and you can, you can find stuff there. I think um, uh, the other place to find more information about my book. So the book technologies of the human corpse, I'll try and say it as many times as possible is available in all the places. It comes out in paperback in, August, but it is available in all the places you would find books online. And I mean, all the places, big independent or big, you know, big sellers, small independents. And you can also find it at the MIT press website. Uh, And if you just Google technologies of the human corpse, you should be taken to it. Um, uh, But yeah, you can find it in all the, all the places you would find books, both book form and I believe ebook form as well. Um, but yeah, please, please do please. And if you ever, if you ever, for some reason are happened to be around me, I don't know why you, anyone would, or I suppose when social distancing is no longer around us, whenever that might be, uh, and you have the book, I will happily sign it. If you want me to sign it, you don't have to have me sign it, but I'm saying, cause that could be awkward if I'm like, I'll sign your book. And you're like, nah, I don't really want you to. I'm like, okay. But if you do, yeah. I'll ha- I'll happily <laughs> sign the book. More, and I'll say, especially if you explain, because it was Galena's important and um, crucial interview I heard you with. So, yeah. So you can find it all those places that way. Or just email me at the University of Bath and I'll figure it out how you can get a book that way. So that's fine.
0: And don't send any more Halloween paraphernalia. Yeah, don't send I, any more.
1: I, have, I have more Halloween. I, it, honestly, I'm not joking when I say over the years, people have been like, it's it's every year when Halloween decor comes out in the shops, you know, the stores and people are like, I saw this, I thought of you, I thought I'd buy it for you. And I'm like, great, thanks. <laughs> it's, like, it's just, I, like I, have, I honestly have like a shelf that's partially just got stuff from... Halloween that people have bought me, yeah, in my office. I really do, and it, you know, because I, it's I appreciate people thinking of me. I do, um, but it, it's funny how that happens every year. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a really fascinating conversation.
1: Yeah. No. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I, I, you know, I certainly hope all the, um, uh, you know, the listeners. Have had a chance to, you know, think through any number of topics related to death and dying, and I would, I would encourage everyone to think through, uh, particularly organ donation, bone and tissue, um, um, bone and tissue donation uh, uh, opportunities, and you know, certainly I, I think being a, a donor is a is a an important thing.